It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. It's business time, baby. You are listening to Solo Monster Sounds Off. It's such good shit. Mama Monster. Conquered! I'm home! You like frightening a woman? Your behavior just hasn't been very oozy. Oh my God, we're only an hour in. Eric Bischoff is an idiot. We have two more hours of this. Maybe the single stupidest idiot that ever got into wrestling. Who writes this stuff? Bruce? Come over here and threaten me! I'm the Solo Monster, damn it. <laughs> Welcome to episode 796 of the Solomonster Sounds Off for Sunday, February 19, 2023. I am the Solomonster. It is a very busy night of pro wrestling last night up in Montreal and over in the Valley. Two big wrestling shows last night, one of which I just wrapped up this morning. Got a lot of thoughts coming out of the Elimination Chamber with a main event that I was looking forward to for a very long time. And also a big debut for Mercedes Monet, challenging for the IWGP Women's Championship at the New Japan Battle in the Valley show. Also, a lot of news coming out of that show as it pertains to Jay White. A lot of rumors this week about Kenny Omega and his future and where he may or may not end up in wrestling. Uh, Also, one of the greatest, most successful wrestling promoters of all time passed away this past week, Jerry Jarrett. We're going to be talking about him as well, so... There's a lot of news to get into. I'm getting a late start here because I had to watch Battle in the Valley this morning. But uh, I am all caught up on my wrestling. And uh, I want to thank everybody who has uh, been supporting the podcast over the past week. All of our uh, PayPal VIPs, our PayPal producers. Thank you. You can always make a donation on thesolomonster.com. You will find the PayPal link at the top of the link tree and... Again, not mandatory, but that is where you can go, as I know many of you do to uh, show your support. Hey, PB. PB, you know who you are. Thank you again. That's uh, very kind of you. The Portland pop star Paul Hamilton, thank you. Night Stalker, Nayef Al-Safar, Big B, Brian Pacera, Killshot, Keith Hart, the Chicago Slayer, Willie Eichert, Velvet Revolver, Robert Murray, the Diamond Dallas Dance Machine, Harrison Soap. New York Punk, Arnold Modesto, The Fire Bomber, Craig Foster, Shin Superkick, Akuma, John Raging Mad Riffle, The Wichita Workhorse, Clayton Nettleton, and The Iowan Corn Farmer, Jesse Lampier. Thank you. And thank you to the nearly 3,000 of you uh, who joined me last night on YouTube Live for the pay-per-view recap and dropped Super Chats and uh, showed a lot of love. Elimination Chamber in Montreal was overall an excellent show with Roman Reigns retaining his undisputed WWE Universal Championship over the hometown hero, Sami Zayn. There was no Eddie Guerrero at No Way Out moment. There wouldn't have been an Eddie Guerrero moment at No Way Out had Brock Lesnar not already given his notice that he was leaving. Some people forget that. Roman Reigns is not leaving, At least not uh, permanently the way Brock did in 2004. He's not going anywhere. In fact, Roman Reigns passed 900 days 
as the Universal Champion this week. He was already the longest reigning Universal Champion since they introduced the title six years ago. And he has the overall longest world title run in WWE since Hulk Hogan from 1984 to 88, which is a run that he will not surpass. The atmosphere at the Bell Center was electric, as you would expect it to be. CM Punk in Chicago vibes from Money in the Bank in 2011 when Sami Zayn walked out last night. And the way the crowd was healing on Roman, you know, the way they did to John Cena in Chicago. Everything was set up perfectly heading into this match. From the storyline twists with Sami over these many months, and Sami's family and his wife sitting in the front row. We got the ref bump I expected. We got the visual pin that I was expecting. They overbooked it with the second ref bump. But we had the Usos, both Usos, interfering in this match. Jay Uso, still torn between his family and his friend. Roman pie-faced him a few times. He handed him a chair so that he could hit Sami Zayn with it. He turned his back on Jay. Jay had the chance to do to Roman what Sami did to Roman at the Royal Rumble, but he didn't do it. He didn't take the shot. Instead, Sami went on to spear Roman... And instead, he accidentally speared Jey Uso when Roman moved out of the way. And Roman just assaulted him with chair shots, one final spear after many uh, in this match, to finally put down Sami Zayn and to kill the dream. The biggest match of Sami Zayn's life. They protected him as best they could. They gave him that visual pin, kicked out of a lot of big moves. They had the Bloodline get involved. We had the two ref bumps. Solo Sokoa was the only member of the Bloodline noticeably absent. As the enforcer of the group, I don't know why he wasn't there. But in the end, Triple H made the correct decision. You do not end a run like this six weeks before your Super Bowl. You just don't do that. Kevin Owens came out after the match. He laid out Roman with a stunner. He laid out Jimmy with a stunner. Gave him a pop-up powerbomb through the announce desk. Laid out Paul Heyman with a stunner, which I'm sure he enjoyed taking more than he did the F5 that Brock Lesnar gave him at SummerSlam through the announce desk. Still takes a better stunner than Vince McMahon ever did. And we did not get the reunion between Sammy and KO. Not yet. It's coming. But we did not get it last night. Uh, we also did not get the Jey Uso turn or uh, Jey Uso making his final decision about where his allegiance lies. Uh, between Sammy and the Bloodline. They held off on both of those things because, you know, they have six more weeks of television to write before we even get to WrestleMania. And I liked the match a lot. I really enjoyed the match, but I thought, you know, when I was talking about the match last night, I thought it was a mistake for them not to take more of a stand on the Jey Uso stuff and to kind of leave that hanging the way that they did. But with the benefit of sleeping on it and uh, also watching it back one more time this morning, I, I may have been a little harsh. I may have been a little harsh, a little reactionary to what they did there. Uh, them holding off on the Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn reunion uh, is fine. I mean, it would have made for a nice moment in, in Montreal for them to kind of come together there at the very end. Holding off on it is fine. Uh, him coming out only after the bloodline screwed Sami out of the title. I know some people said, oh, that doesn't make any sense. What a, what a friend he is. Waiting until the very end to come out. Well, it makes sense. Because the two of them are not back on the same page yet. They're not back to being best friends. Owens knows what Sammy did for him at the Royal Rumble. So him coming out after the match to fight off the bloodline, that was kind of his way of telling Sammy, okay, now we're even. And now they can build it on television. 
But them not making a move one way or the other with Jey Uso, what that does is it keeps Jey's story open as far as what will he do? What will he do at WrestleMania? He could take this all the way to WrestleMania if they want. They could still set up a tag team title match, but they don't necessarily have to give us an answer, you know, a firm answer on what Jey Uso is going to do until we get to Los Angeles. You know, now he's going to be defending those titles with his brother, uh, but he can still play the conflicted role up until they get to the big show. You know, he he doesn't necessarily want to fight Sammy because he really likes the guy and he considers him a brother, but. His actual brother is his tag team partner, and they've got the titles that they've held for 600-some-odd days by then. Uh, So he'll fight him. He'll fight Sammy if he has to, but he doesn't necessarily want to. So maybe there doesn't need to be a pre-WrestleMania beatdown uh, or an angle with Jey Uso turning on Sammy. One thing I mentioned last night, and I I should have taken my own advice and understood this better when it came to that finish... Because I said as much during the review last night, I said this, and a lot of people still don't understand this. This is less a story about Sami Zayn, and it's more a story about Jey Uso. The Jey Uso story arc has been playing out a lot longer than the Sami Zayn one has. This is every bit as much Jey Uso's story as it is Sami Zayn's, if not more. And Roman losing those titles, whether it's to Cody Rhodes at WrestleMania or if it's to somebody else later on, is probably going to hinge on what Jey Uso does. Remember where we started with this storyline at the very beginning of all this, Jey Uso being manipulated by Roman Reigns, yelling at Roman on television, I hate you, I hate you. This was back in the Thunderdome, that's how far back this story goes. But he fell in line. And it would be poetic if at the end of all this, it was Jey Uso who had a hand in costing Roman, you know, the source of all, the source of all of his power and the most important thing to him being the two championships that he has. Wouldn't it be something if Jey Uso was the one to cause his downfall in the end and and for this run that he's been on to come to an end? If Jey Uso is the one who causes it all to come crashing down, that's great storytelling. It is more interesting to see how it'll all play out on TV instead of blowing off that part of the story last night. So I I don't, you know, as I've had the chance to think about it more, I don't dislike it as much uh, as I did last night watch. I still, again, I think it was a little too overbooked, but I don't, you know, dislike that as much as I did watching it last night. The storytelling here overall, over the last nine months, year, you know, whatever, has been masterful. And I have faith in Triple H that it will play out the right way in the end. Roman Reigns winning last night was the right move. There should be no triple threat match at WrestleMania. They should not have two title matches, one on each night, with Roman losing on night one and then still having to wrestle on night two, because then it just takes a lot of the shine off the Cody match on night two if you do that. If they do the Cody match night one with another Sammy match advertised for night two, then all you're doing is splitting the crowd for the match on night one. I've had people pitch a triple threat to me with a double pin on Roman to split the titles. WWE should not go with any of these ideas. (laughs) They should leave these ideas at the doorstep. They should stay the course, and they can split the titles after WrestleMania, or, or whenever Roman finally loses, because more and more as I think about this, it is not... 
nearly a surefire guarantee that Cody Rhodes is walking out of WrestleMania with those championships. I still think it, it favors him, but far from a guarantee. So whenever Roman does finally drop the belts, plural, then they can figure out, okay, let's split them. How are we going to do this? Whether it's a draft, whether they just announce that they're splitting the belts, they can do whatever the fuck they want. It's their company. <laughs> they can do whatever they want. But you can split the belts once the reign is over. And Roman eats that first pin since 2019. Then you can worry about splitting the titles. Now, we also had Brock Lesnar against Bobby Lashley Part 3. And we got a cheap low-blow finish. This is the finish they went with. I thought we would get a a non-finish. I thought they would just beat the hell out of each other, get double disqualified. People come out, they beat them up. I mean, there was a way to do kind of a a hot non-finish that, you know, was never going to please everybody. But the way they did it last night was totally lame and totally cheap. He was trapped in the hurt lock. He had nowhere to go. And so Brock lifts his leg. He kicks him in the dick. And he gets disqualified. And clearly this is leading to another match between these two. Which, before the Bray Wyatt stuff on Friday, I thought that was always the plan. was to get to WrestleMania and blow the feud off of WrestleMania. But clearly that's that's where this is headed. And, and let me just say one other thing about the match. And I said this last night. I get that these two are older now. They're at a phase now in their careers where... They have their they have their match, they have their formula, they have their their moves that they do, and they can stick to that and they can make it work. Right? Brock Brock does whatever Brock wants to do. I get that. But it's a damn shame. As great as Brock Lesnar and Bobby Lashley both are as actual wrestlers, that they offered no variety in any of their matches. They've now had three singles matches, and they've offered no variety from one match to the next. And you could say that's a problem with all Brock Lesnar matches at this point. But I waited a very long time to see these two finally match up. Years. Years. I I wanted to see Brock Lesnar and Bobby Lashley. I said, man, that could be a fun match. And and there are elements of these matches they've had where, you know, it has been fun in spots. But now I look back, they just had their third match. And again, there's just no variety to any of them. It's just the usual spam shit. It's the same you know, basic formula over and over again. I don't see another match of WrestleMania being any different with Bray Wyatt involved. And I say Bray Wyatt because on SmackDown Friday night, Bray Wyatt cut a promo and he teased a match with at least one of these men at WrestleMania. He said Bobby Lashley, Brock Lesnar. Whichever one of you wins at Elimination Chamber tomorrow night, I have a piece of advice for you. Run, he said. So Bray Wyatt is going to end up involved in this in some way. The most likely scenario, I think, uh, based on what happened last night, even though Lashley technically won by DQ, this ends up becoming a triple threat. You get a three-way feud going with Lashley, Lesnar, and Bray. And I don't know why Bray has to be involved in this. If they're going to blow off the Lashley and Brock stuff, if they couldn't give us a decisive winner last night, why the fuck does Bray Wyatt have to be involved in this at all? Why can't he just do something else? Uh, But they would not have done that segment on Friday if he was not going to be involved in some way. If they're going to do it, a three-way would be the way to go. Because I just don't... Brock Lesnar and Bray Wyatt as a one-on-one singles match at this point, especially the way that Brock, you know, kind of handles his matches, that sounds like a terrible fucking idea. I don't think those two would mesh well at all. I don't look at that and go, man, that would be a fun match. I look at that and go, man, that's going to end up being like this. It's going to end up being a massive disappointment. At least if you throw Lashley in there, you get the third guy in there. It could make things a little more interesting. 
But I, you know, don't count me in as one of these people who hears about Brock Lesnar against Bray Wyatt. Oh, we haven't seen that before. Yeah, we haven't seen that before. But that doesn't mean that it's going to be any good. Now, we had two Elimination Chamber matches last night, with Asuka punching her ticket to challenge Bianca Belair at WrestleMania for the Raw Women's Championship, and Austin Theory outlasting five other men to retain his United States title in what I thought was one of the best Chamber matches that they have done in years. So, my predictions were on the money, as far as both Chambers and who I thought was going to come out victorious. Asuka winning is the right choice, but I do feel like of the two women's title matches that are set for WrestleMania, that's the one that is most vulnerable to turning into either a triple threat with Becky Lynch involved or a fatal four-away with Becky and Bailey. Theory winning means that he's likely defending the U.S. title against John Cena at WrestleMania, which I think makes the outcome a little less unpredictable if the title is on the line. I don't think it's needed. But everybody had a chance to shine in that men's chamber match last night. Montez Ford, I thought, had a terrific first outing on his own. That that man is a star in the making. And Bronson Reed got beat, but it took three super kicks and then three finishing moves to put the big guy down. They did everything they could to protect him before he got pinned. I was not expecting him to be the first one eliminated in that match, but they did what they could uh, to protect him. And I thought he looked great for the time that he was in there. And then we had Logan Paul at the end showing up when the door was open. As they were taking Montez Ford out of the chamber, he snuck in. Took down Seth Rollins with the buckshot lariat and a curb stomp of his own. So you said they, they lit the fuse at the Royal Rumble when Logan Paul eliminated Seth Rollins. After last night, though, it's going to be a raging inferno now between these two heading into WrestleMania. And the best part of all, they finally figured out what you and I already knew is that Logan Paul is a heel, and he would be best as a heel, which is what he's going to be going into this match at WrestleMania. Now, Edge and Beth Phoenix, they got their revenge on the Judgment Day, Edge pinned Finn Balor, so at least Rhea Ripley did not take the losing fall. Post-show, they had a press conference after Elimination Chamber. Austin Theory was out there, and I guess he, you know, threw down the open challenge, and he was acting all uh, full of himself. Edge and Beth came out later on. And Edge said that he heard what Theory said. He accepted Theory's open challenge for Ottawa on Monday for the United States Championship. Edge said that he hasn't wrestled there in probably 17 or 18 years. And he hasn't held gold in a while. He said, I retired as the World Heavyweight Champion, but I haven't held gold since then. So he's going to get his shot on Raw tomorrow night. And you know what that means. Finn Balor is going to fuck it all up. That's how I see that going down. Finn Balor made it very clear when the match was over last night when they put the camera on him. Even though he lost, he said, this issue is not over between you and me. So that's how I see that going down. I think they're going to play with people's emotions in Canada. They're going to get people wanting badly to see Edge win that U.S. title. And then uh, Finn Balor and the Judgment Day are going to fuck it all up. And that's then going to lead to one more match at WrestleMania, maybe inside Hell in a Cell, right? That was rumored originally for the Royal Rumble. Edge was filming a a Disney Plus show, so he wasn't available. Uh, So now there's talk that maybe they'll do Hell in a Cell at Mania. Maybe it'll be Edge against the Demon, even though the Demon died against Roman Reigns a few years ago, and he's still buried. Honestly, you know, as I think about this Hell in a Cell stuff, I was just talking about Brock Lesnar and Bobby Lashley. Hell in a Cell would make more sense to blow off the Lesnar and Lashley feud than it would Edge and Balor, if we're being perfectly honest. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But anyway, uh, one thing they also did last night, they aired the first of the new slate of WrestleMania Goes Hollywood movie parodies, which I've been waiting for. Uh, with Seth Rollins and Becky Lynch playing the role of the Joker and Batman. And uh, I thought I thought it was good, but you know, it was Mike Johnson on Tuesday on PW Insider who reported that WWE was filming material for WrestleMania movie parodies in Orlando this week. So you know, they, they turned this shit around real quick. The website has since confirmed the following parodies were being filmed. Bianca Belair and Montez Ford... Apparently, they're going to be parodying the uh, movie Titanic. The Becky and the Seth one. All, all PW Insider said at the time is that they were doing a superhero uh, parody. Rhea Ripley is going to be in a Stranger Things parody. and it, I mean, Dominic better be in there. <laughs> if they don't put Rhea and Dom in the same parody, I don't know what we're doing here. Miz and Maurice are going to be in a Top Gun parody. And Butch and Ridge Holland from the Brawling Brutes are going to be in a 40-year-old virgin parody. So that is according to PW Insider. WrestleVotes uh, did specify that Becky and Seth were doing a Batman and Joker parody. So WrestleVotes nailed that one. But WrestleVotes also said that The Bloodline was doing a Goodfellas parody. I hope that's true. Because that sounds awesome. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing the rest of these parodies as they uh, roll them out in the weeks ahead. And one other thing to watch for. I made this comment on the stream on Friday. I said, you know, it just hit me. We are now almost at the end of February. We're nearing the end of February soon. It's a short month. Usually by now, we already have at least the headliner, if not a, a few people announced for the WWE Hall of Fame. They have not said a word about the WWE Hall of Fame. Now, I assume they're doing the Hall of Fame this year, and I'm, I'm still assuming Dave Batista is going to headline. I know Batista was lobbying Triple H for it. He was supposed to go in three years ago, but he turned it down. He pushed it back because... You know, COVID and he didn't want to have one of these things where there's no people. And so he said, uh, we'll do it another time. And so he's been lobbying for it. They're in Hollywood. I mean, unless they get The Rock or something, which they probably won't for the uh, Hall of Fame. Batista, you know, Batista as a headliner is fine. It's, it's puzzling to me. I've had a few people say, no, not yet. He doesn't deserve it. Or he's not a big enough. I don't know. It's weird for me to hear that some people actually think he's not a big enough name to either be in the Hall of Fame, which is comical. I mean, let's let's just be honest about what this Hall of Fame is. You don't think Batista belongs in there, then there, there's something wrong with you. Because, <laughs> I mean, my God, some of the people they put in, you don't think Batista belongs in there? Guy's been a world heavyweight champion, WrestleMania headliner, part of one of the biggest factions in this company in the last 20 years. 
What exactly are you looking for? This is the WWE Hall of Fame. Of course, Batista uh, belongs in the Hall of Fame. I, yeah, I guess if some people think he's not worthy of headlining, I, yeah, even that I disagree with. I think he's a big enough name to headline. And if you can get a big, uh, big Hollywood guy like Batista who wants to be in your Hall of Fame class, then that's something that you don't say no to. Now, the problem is they've ran out of a lot of bigger names. Undertaker went in. Rock, they may not be able to get. Austin's in. Uh, Triple H is in, I guess, as part of, of, of DX. He'll get a, an induction on his own probably at some point. That's not going to happen now. Uh, he's not going to put himself in the Hall of Fame this year. A, a lot of those big names, they're already in. Some of them are in multiple times. You know, it's Batista going into the Hall of Fame and headlining that class makes all the sense in the world to me. But it is strange that we still have not gotten uh, any Hall of Fame announcements. Maybe we'll get our first one on Raw tomorrow night. By the time you listen to this, maybe they will have already made the announcement. Typically, the way they work these things is they'll leak it to a big media outlet. So if they're going to make an announcement tomorrow, we'll probably know at 9 o'clock in the morning because they'll leak it to Variety or TMZ or ESPN or some bullshit like that. So we'll see. Now, while Sami Zayn and Roman Reigns were lighting it up in Montreal, New Japan held its Battle in the Valley show, which I finally got to watch this morning, the key matches anyway, uh, that I wanted to see. There were there were really three key matches I wanted to watch. CM Punk was among those in the crowd. He was not shown on camera, but he was sitting in the media section of all places. He was sitting in the media section during this show. No media scrum for CM Punk this time, which was probably for the better. Uh, Bailey was also in the crowd, leading a lot of the fan chants for her best friend. It was Mercedes Monet against Kyrie for the IWGP Women's Championship. And I, I got to see the Mercedes documentary on YouTube. It was like a 22-minute documentary showing clips of her arriving in Japan. This is before Wrestle Kingdom and how nervous she was and how excited she was and just talking into the camera and crying and being emotional and being you know, just honest about how she felt about the whole thing. And then uh, Trinity showed up there to support her. It was just kind of following along like a vlog, leading into the Wrestle Kingdom show at the Tokyo Dome. So it showed her backstage meeting Kenny Omega for the first time in many years uh, and some of the other people that she met with that night. And then uh, some clips of her debut when she came out after Kyrie's match. But it was uh, an excellent little documentary. It just goes to show when you watch it just how much this really means to her. And I also think, you know, if you watch that before the show last night, it just gave you a better perspective on on how big this match really was to her. She and Kyrie had an excellent 25-minute match. The best women's match I've seen in a very long time. And really, just you can even take the word women's out. It was just an excellent match, period. Kyrie really got shortchanged at the Tokyo Dome last month. They gave her and Tam Nakano six minutes. They had, a, they had a decent match, but what can you really do when you're being rushed on a big show like that in six minutes? Here, they didn't have that problem because it was one of the main events of the show. You know, they moved several hundred extra tickets after they announced Mercedes was going to be wrestling on this show. They had 2,100 people in the venue, which was the capacity that they were set up for. It was great to see Mercedes back in the ring. Her first match in almost a year. She walked out with with Naomi last May. Uh, So not quite a year, but close enough. She walked out of WWE as a champion the last we saw her. And after her first match last night, she's a champion once more. Noticeably heelish. 
in spots, which was a trademark of those old NXT Sasha Banks matches. Uh, her match with Bailey, in my opinion, still her greatest match. That's kind of her magnum opus. Uh, I think this probably is number two. This may be the second best match this woman has ever had. She pulled the referee in the way at one point to take a back fist from Kyrie. Uh, she took a power bomb through a table while the referee was down. She ate a brutal-looking DDT from Kyrie when Kyrie reversed out of the three amigos. But in the end, Mercedes got her feet up when Kyrie went to the top for the insane elbow. And this time, when Mercedes hit her finish, uh, she hit her finish. <laughs> it was the gory bomb into a face plant. Maybe it was supposed to be a DDT. From, from my angle, it looked like a face plant. Uh, but the key is that Kyrie did not land on her knees like she did at the Tokyo Dome. She landed properly this time, and it looked much better. And Mercedes wins the IWGP title. It was very cool seeing her get this moment, because again, you watch that documentary, and you could tell how much she has been wanting this and waiting for this for a very long time. She went out there, she didn't miss a step. For someone who hasn't wrestled the proper match in almost a year, I know she's been training in Mexico and... It's not like she hasn't had any ring time. Uh, but this was her first match in almost a year. She didn't miss a step. She looked great. And she's already checked a couple of things off her bucket list. You know, made her debut at the Tokyo Dome. Won the IWGP women's title. She has not ruled out a WWE return. She was asked about that this past week. She has not ruled out a return to WWE, which is smart. Because why the hell would she rule it out? That's just bad business. But right now, she's having fun. She's able to work with whoever she wants to work with. Kyrie, Kyrie's not really a fresh name. I mean, she worked with Kyrie in WWE a little bit, but she can work with all these, you know, new faces now. She can work with anybody she wants. She may end up dropping that belt in a couple of months at the big stardom show. They're going to be doing a big show in April that uh, she's committed to being on. She may lose the championship there. She, this may not be a very long run. I don't know how long her agreement is with them. If it goes really well, they may want to extend it. They may think, hey, you know, she's moving tickets for us. If maybe the Fight TV show did good business, you know, pay, you know, pay-per-view-wise, they may end up going to her and saying, look, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll pay you what you want if we can extend this out another six months. Maybe she sticks around longer. I don't know how long the agreement is, but I, I hope we get to see more matches like this out of her. Now, we also got Tanahashi against Okada for the IWGP World Heavyweight title for the first time ever on American soil. It was not their best match, but even an average match. And this was, this was not average. This was a good match, but even an average match between Tanahashi and Okada is going to be a lot of fun to watch. Okada wins with the Rainmaker. And then after the match, he gets on the mic, he's doing his post-match promo, and he pitches the idea of he and Tanahashi forming a dream team to go after the IWGP tag team titles. Before Mercedes then comes back out, she sends us home with a promo. She's posing with her title. Okada's posing with his title. This woman is out here living her best life right now. Now, a week ago, Jay White lost a loser-leaves-Japan match to Hikuleo. So he would no longer be allowed to wrestle in Japan. And with his contract coming up very shortly, that seemed to confirm that he would be leaving the company. This is, you know, and it's not a case where, well, he'll he'll wrestle for them for, for strong, you know, in the U.S., but he won't have any matches in Japan. It was pretty clear he's leaving the company. 
At Battle in the Valley last night, he lost again. This time he lost to Eddie Kingston. And when was the last time we saw Eddie Kingston win a, a really big match like this? So good for Eddie. But it was a match where the loser would no longer be able to wrestle for New Japan at all. Nor would they be allowed to wrestle any of New Japan's talent. And if Jay White was leaving to sign with AEW, for example, none of this would have been necessary. Because AEW has a working relationship with New Japan Pro Wrestling. He would still be able to work matches there if he wanted to. So it was very telling that these were the stipulations they chose as far as, I think, where he he could potentially be headed. Now, he had the match won. He hit his Blade Runner finish. Kingston, though, rolled out to the floor to avoid being pinned. Kingston countered a Northern Lights driver, uh, or with a Northern Lights driver. Jay White kicked out. Kingston then pulled White to his feet, gave him a hug, and then hit a second Northern Lights driver, and he pinned him. And after the match was over, Jay White was about to cut a promo when David Finley hit the ring and attacked him, laid him out with the shillelagh. Then he cut a promo on Jay White, said that Jay had squandered the opportunity that he was given by New Japan, and then he was putting the wrestling world on notice. So I don't know if that's an indication that David Finley is going to be the new leader of Bullet Club or what, uh, but... That is how uh, Jay White's run with New Japan came to an end, because after that, he didn't say anything. He got carried out. So the signs, if you read between the lines here, the signs are pointing very strongly towards him signing with WWE. He expressed no interest in going there years ago, but that was then. This is now. He's older. He's not old, but he's older than he was then. He's a much better performer, a much more well-rounded performer, a bigger star than he was back then. And if this was WWE under Vince McMahon, under his creative, I would say that it would be a terrible place for him to go. I don't think Vince McMahon would get Jay White. But under Triple H, I think he could do well. I think he'll have a better chance to succeed and get over than he would have even a year ago. But according to an item in this week's Wrestling Observer, Dave Meltzer says that those in WWE who would normally know of major acquisitions during WrestleMania season did not know about this one and only said that there was a much bigger free agent in play right now that internally was the priority to them. Which has led to a lot of speculation about who that free agent could be. Now, one of those names would have to be Kota Ibushi who just got out of his New Japan deal, he is a free agent. And like Jay White, he's a former IWGP champion. He's headlined the Tokyo Dome. In fact, he headlined with Jay White in the Tokyo Dome two years ago. And Ibushi has said that if WWE were to allow him to train and create the next generation of wrestlers at the Performance Center and also have some high-profile matches, that he would most certainly work with WWE. I don't think Ibushi is the free agent. I don't think Ibushi is the free agent that Meltzer was referring to. First of all, WWE is not going to want Kota Ibushi to be training their wrestlers. The way the way Kota Ibushi wrestles and lands on his fucking neck all the time. WWE wants to train their wrestlers the exact opposite of Kota Ibushi. Of the way he wrestles his matches. I also can't see them using Ibushi and not signing him to some sort of contract. And why would Ibushi want to tie himself down to a contract when he wanted so badly to get out of the one that he had with New Japan. 
Now, I know he had issues with the way they treated him after he got hurt, and and that had a lot to do with why he wanted out, but for him to leave only to go sign a deal with WWE, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And also, consider this. Why would WWE prioritize a 40-year-old who doesn't speak English over someone 10 years younger who does speak English and has actually developed into a very good promo? And I'm talking about Jay White. You know, Jay White, he, he would not be the smallest man on the on the roster. I know for some people, oh, these guys are all small. He wouldn't be the smallest guy in the roster for anyone thinking that he's six feet tall. He's cut. He's got a good physique. He can work. I, I don't think any of that. I don't think his appearance would be an issue. But then came a report a few hours later from Fightful Select that there has been chatter coming from WWE of late with several in the company believing that they have a chance to land Kenny Omega. The report says that despite the WWE-AEW rivalry, they are told that Omega had a positive relationship with WWE, and especially Triple H, when discussing the possibility of signing there in late 2018. Although there have been accusations from the AEW side regarding contract tampering, WWE sources told Fightful they don't believe that was the case with Omega specifically. So there, there you go. I mean, Omega would certainly be a bigger free agent than Jay White would be. The Fightful report also states that multiple AEW sources have claimed to have overheard Tony Khan say that Kenny Omega has substantial injury time that could be added to his contract to extend his current deal if AEW chose to do so. But that time has not been added as of right now. But that with Omega having good representation, the automatic extension might not be a slam dunk, or that it might potentially have some concessions to it. Now, I think it was Meltzer uh, last year who reported, and everybody, you know, people make fun of Meltzer and everything, and, and look, of anybody, when we're talking about the elite guys, I would think Meltzer knows what he's talking about and is pretty plugged in. And it was Meltzer last year, I think, who reported that Omega's contract with AEW was up in February. Well, it's February. And I would be shocked if Tony Khan had Kenny Omega working there without a contract or with, you know, with one that was due to expire in the next two weeks. So I don't know how accurate that contract end date really is. It may have been accurate at the time. Maybe since then it's been extended. Omega missed nine months from the ring. But, you know, it's not as if he was sitting around at home doing nothing the entire time. Streaming on Twitch. He was back working backstage in the weeks before he made his in-ring comeback. And he's also been very intimately involved in the production of the Fight Forever video game, which has been his personal pet project. Uh, it's Tony Khan's money. Tens of millions of dollars of Tony Khan's money. But Omega has really been the point person every step of the way as far as Fight Forever is concerned. So I, I'm no uh, legal eagle here, but he may have an argument. If Tony tries to add time to his deal and he wants to fight it and say, look, I, I was working for the company at the time, maybe he could fight it. But what a kick in the balls it would be if Kenny Omega left before the game finally comes out. <laughs> Can you even imagine? With all the delays, and I know the game just got their T for Teen rating, and it looks like finally we're going to get a release date soon for this game. It looks like the game could be out actually in the spring. I just talked about this last week, maybe around the time of Double or Nothing. But we still don't know when the game is even going to come out. What a kick in the fucking balls it would be if Kenny Omega, the face of this project in many ways actually leaves the company before the game comes out. Can you even imagine? 
That would be embarrassing. But he's already in the game, so he would still get his residuals from me. You're not going to take him out of the game at this point. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, this is huge. If Omega's contract is up soon, this is huge. He's only a year younger than Ibushi. And he's got a lot more miles on his body than Jay White does. But Kenny Omega is still one of the best in the world. Calls himself the best bout machine. It's a weird thing when I watch Omega in AEW. It's not that he has bad matches in AEW. But the Omega we see in AEW and doing the elite stuff is very different than the Kenny Omega, for example, that we saw last month at the Tokyo Dome against Will Ospreay. That's the Kenny Omega that I think WWE wants. That's the Kenny Omega that became the best bout machine. That's the Kenny Omega that I think can make any company a lot of money and brings the greatest value. It's what he can bring in the ring. He's still one of the best in the world. AEW was literally named after him and the Young Bucks. Elite is in the name of the company. 40 years old and all beat up, the reality is, if Kenny Omega has any aspirations of ever going to WWE, this is this feels like one of those now or never situations. And this is one of the reasons that I said at the time, last year, when WWE signed Cody Rhodes, why that was such a big deal. One of the reasons why that was such a big deal. Yes, Cody was an EVP, and WWE signing away one of the founding fathers of AEW was very embarrassing for Tony Khan. Losing Kenny Omega would be every bit as embarrassing, if not more. And it would hurt. It would hurt a lot. But I said last year, when Cody left, if he had gone to WWE, and they treated him like a second-class citizen, if they relegated him back to the mid-card, that would not have sent a great message to the rest of the AEW roster about the fate that awaits them in WWE. But I said, if they bring back Cody and they shoot him to the moon, And they give him the big push. That shows everybody else that it is safe. It's safe to kind of dip your toe in the water. It's safe to come on over. Triple H taking over creative in the summer only made it more likely that people in AEW who, you know, otherwise may not have considered WWE as an option now, all of a sudden they might feel differently. And look at the year that Cody has had. He got to keep his entire AEW entrance. He beat Seth Rollins, one of their big stars, in three straight pay-per-view matches. He got hurt, but then he came back, and what had happened when he came back? He won the Royal Rumble. And now he is about to headline his first WrestleMania against Roman Reigns for the championship. Not only did WWE gain a new main event star, more than that, look at what his signing probably means for the future names that they may be able to sign. I don't know how much, if any, communication Cody still has with Kenny Omega since he left. I know Cody has a lot of friends who still work there, people like MJF and Ricky Starks that he still talks to. Ricky Starks was caught on camera coming into the Alamo Dome with Cody at the Royal Rumble. But having a guy like Cody who can tell these people, hey guys, 
It's pretty cool over here. Don't be afraid. That's a pretty big chip in their favor when these contracts come due. Nobody expected Cody to leave when he did and go back to WWE. And that's what happened. So you can never say never on Omega leaving to go to WWE. I'll point to something else, too, that nobody else is talking about. In 2017, Omega told Dave Meltzer and Brian Alvarez the main reason he would ever want to go to WWE is to have a match with AJ Styles at WrestleMania. He said before AJ hangs it up, And before he starts to degenerate as an athlete, he really wants to have a big match with AJ on the biggest stage possible. It was very important to him. He called it a career goal of his. That was six years ago. AJ Styles is 45. Kenny Omega is sniffing 40. If that's still a career goal of his, then we need to take this news very seriously. Omega and Styles, that would be a huge match in WWE. Omega and Seth Rollins. Omega and Roman Reigns. Omega and Cody Rhodes. Omega and Gunther. The list of opponents is very long. He's friendly with the New Day. Maybe he'd like to work with those guys, right? There's any number of possibilities for Kenny Omega in WWE. Then there's the question, though, of New Japan. If he goes to WWE, he's not going to be able to wrestle in New Japan. How important is that to him? It must be pretty important since he supposedly has a clause in his contract that allows him to wrestle there so long as it doesn't conflict with his AEW commitments. Would Triple H and Nick Khan allow that sort of deal for him in WWE? Because that opens the door then for everybody else who wants a similar provision in their contract. So there are definite pros and cons. If you're Kenny Omega, there are pros and cons to where you want to end up going or going to WWE. But when you get to a certain age, depending on what your goals are in the business, you may have some things on your bucket list that you want to cross off. I don't think Kenny Omega leaving AEW would be a death knell for the company. It would wound them. There's no doubt about it. It would it would wound them in a big way. It would be a bigger loss for them than than Cody was. If he left. And if Omega leaves, then you wonder what impact could that have on the Young Bucks and their desire to stay in AEW. If all the members of the Elite leave, hey, maybe that paves the way for a CM Punk return in AEW. He won't have to worry about them anymore. If all the EVPs disappear. As uh, as Charlotte Flair would say, there's levels to this. <laughs> there are levels. There are a lot of moving parts to this story. But I don't think it would kill AEW. I know some people say, man, that would be it. That would, that would just... That would be the death blow for AEW if they lost Kenny Omega. It would not be the death blow for AEW. They have far too much talent for me to sit here and say that losing one person is going to kill the territory. But Tony Khan has to do everything in his power to keep Kenny Omega. And I'm sure that he will. I'm sure he'll do whatever he feels he has to do. Just for appearance sake alone. Losing Kenny Omega to WWE is not something that he can afford to let happen. You know, Mike Tyson made the news this week. Mike Tyson had The Undertaker on his most recent podcast. And I I I think it might have been a co-host who brought something up. And it led to Tyson talking about WWE and AEW. And Tyson admitted, he goes, I would rather appear for WWE than AEW, even though AEW pays me more. That's really embarrassing that he would go public and say something like that. That's the kind of thing that gets out there in the news and makes AEW look like little brother. And they are. 
They are little brother. I know some AEW fans are not going to like to hear that, but that's what they are. But to have Mike Tyson come out and say something like that is very embarrassing. Appearance matters. And losing their second EVP in two years to the competition would be a catastrophic blow to AEW. Not a death blow, but it would be really bad. But to go back to Jay White, I still think he ends up in WWE. And if they sign him soon, I would debut him on Raw the night after WrestleMania. I I don't think he's going to be at WrestleMania. If he were to be signed before Mania, I, I don't think it's a matter of, well, who's he going to wrestle at WrestleMania? I, I still see him more as one of those big debuts the night after WrestleMania. And, you know, with Cody on Raw and his history with Bullet Club and AJ Styles and the Good Brothers on Raw, Finn Balor and the Judgment Day, he would already have, I mean, he's got history with so many of these guys. Sending him to NXT first, let's say, instead of sending him directly to Monday Night Raw. And when I say sending him to NXT, I mean this new version of NXT uh, would be a colossal waste. Bloomberg had a new report up on Friday by Lucas Shaw that Vince McMahon is seeking $9 billion. I'm putting my pinky to my mouth as I say that. To sell WWE. That is his reported asking price, which is 37% greater than the company's $6.5 billion market value. The company has already received offers, although it was not said from who. The article says that the list of potential buyers includes Endeavor, which owns UFC, as well as investors from the Middle East who have already made major investments in golf and soccer. And Endeavor would need financial help from a third party since it is its own market cap is a little over $10 billion. It's only a little bit more than what Vince McMahon wants. Larger strategic buyers such as Netflix and Disney may be uneasy taking on a business controlled by McMahon that involves the sometimes messy personal lives of its wrestlers. Uh, yet McMahon may not find many buyers eager to pay his price considering the shaky global economy and rising interest rates. A valuation of $9 billion amounts to about seven times the company's $1.29 billion in sales, uh, $1.29 billion in sales last year, and 23 times its adjusted operating income before depreciation and amortization, both at the high end for the entertainment industry. Any media company interested in airing WWE programming could also use this moment to buy the entire business. And on Twitter, Shaw said that, for what it's worth, sources have expressed skepticism that many traditional media companies will buy WWE. Look, they're going to fetch a lot of money, but I can't see them fetching $9 billion. This is one of those situations where you ask high and you negotiate down from there. That That is, uh, if he wants to sell to anybody other than the Saudis. If he really wants $9 billion, the Saudis will probably give it to him. Not only would they give it to him, they would probably let him stay on in charge of the entire thing. Well, look, I'm out of the running because I misplaced my $9 billion, so I will not be buying WWE. But uh, I have bought Raycons, and uh, I've been pretty pleased with them. And in fact, this week's episode is sponsored by our friends at Raycon. This time of year, everybody is talking about making big changes, which is all well and good, except that most of those changes never actually happen, right? I've made New Year's resolutions in the past, too, that by Valentine's Day or the week after seem like a distant memory. Sometimes it's the smallest changes to your routine that tend to stick, 
In the same way, you don't need to break the bank to make a big purchase. Even the smallest things can make for a big change if it's something that you use every day, like my Raycons. Raycon is premium audio at the perfect price point. At the gym, I'm a music guy. I know some people are podcast people, some people watch television shows on their phone. I'm a music guy. I can't get my heart rate up when I do cardio unless I've got my favorite music on blast. And that's where my Raycons are such a big part of my fitness routine. And Raycons start at half the price of other premium audio brands. So you don't even have to choose between products. You can get one of each or a pair and a spare and still pay less than you would with some of the other guys. And here's another cool thing about Raycon. They want to make sure that you feel great about what you're spending your money on. They offer buy now, pay later options, and every purchase has an easy and free return guarantee. So you've got nothing to lose. I've got a pair of Raycon Everyday Earbuds. I love their custom gel tips. It's a very comfortable fit in my ear. Their noise isolation, which lets me block out outside noise, is great. And I love that I can get eight hours of playtime out of them on a single charge. There's a reason these things have over 50,000 five-star reviews. On the Meltzer scale, he'd probably give them six stars if they were used in the Tokyo Dome. So, ready to buy something small with a big impact? Go to buyraycon.com slash solomonster today to get 15% off your Raycon order. That's buyraycon.com slash solomonster to score 15% off. Buyraycon.com slash solomonster. And use the code solomonster at checkout to get yourself 15% off. In an interview with Sports Illustrated this week, Tony Khan finally revealed the debut date for the new weekly Ring of Honor show one year after he announced that he had acquired ROH. The show will begin airing new weekly shows on Thursday, March 2nd, with their first tapings next weekend at Universal Studios in Orlando. And the show will air on the ROH Honor Club service, which you will have to pay $9.99 a month for. If you're a Ring of Honor fan... It's worth it for the full library. You get 2,500 hours, I think over 2,500 hours of content dating back to the launch in 2002. If you're not interested in the library, then it just boils down to how interested are you in a relaunch Ring of Honor. You know, there was chatter last month with New Japan sunsetting the whole New Japan Strong, uh, you know, series in its current form that maybe some... Maybe in some form it would end up on Honor Club, or maybe their wrestlers would appear on the new Ring of Honor show. I could see that attracting some interest from the diehards, uh, but nothing's been said officially in that direction. That's just all speculation, but that is the update on ROH. Now, on the subject of Tony Khan, he was in a mood on Friday night when he saw Ariel Helwani pop up on SmackDown as their Canadian correspondent in the crowd being that he's from Montreal. He also does interviews with WWE talent for BT Sport, and, and Nick Khan used to be his agent, so Ariel obviously has connections to WWE. And this upset Tony Khan greatly. It all goes back to the interview that Tony gave to Ariel in October, which was not anything connected to BT Sport or anything like that. That was on Ariel's show on Ariel's personal YouTube channel. He sat down with uh, Tony Khan, he interviewed Tony Khan. And it was an interview that Ariel later, after it dropped, called one of the most frustrating interviews that he has ever done in his entire career. Because a lot of the questions that he asked Tony Khan, Tony would not answer. Mainly the stuff about the brawl out incident and the investigation that 
you know, alleged investigation that came out of it, Tony said that he couldn't talk about it. And it was to the point where Ariel kept trying to ask him the same thing over and over again to the point where, you know, even I'm sitting there, you know, watching this and listening to this going, all right, dude, move on. I get what you're trying to do. I get you're trying to get answers here. I've done interviews myself in the past, right? I'm not trying to compare myself to Ariel Helwani, but I, I've been in that position. You ask questions. You want to try to get an answer to. After the second time of asking the, basically the same question and not getting an answer, it's time to move on. And Ariel just couldn't let it go. And legally, maybe Tony Khan couldn't, or he just legally felt that he couldn't say anything about it. But people forget, it wasn't just CM Punk and the Elite and the incident at at All Out that Ariel asked him about and got no answers to. He asked him about Punk and the Elite. Tony said he didn't want to talk about that. He asked him about MJF. Tony didn't want to talk about that. He asked him about Cody Rhodes. Tony didn't want to talk about that. He asked him about Bray Wyatt and any discussions he may have had with Bray. He didn't want to talk about that. He asked Tony what he had for breakfast that morning, and he didn't want to talk about that either. But he was happy to talk about AEW Rampage and what a great show it was going to be. For all the time they spent together, Tony Khan didn't have a whole lot to say. Other than how great everything is and how great AEW is. And that makes for a really boring interview. I can understand why he would want to say that and talk about that. He's a promoter, but that makes for a really fucking boring interview. And I said at the time, neither of these guys came out of that situation looking good. Ariel, like I said, kept asking questions he probably knew he was not going to get an answer to. And Tony gave him nothing. If Tony Khan knew that he would be asked about multiple things that he wasn't going to talk about, then he or his PR people, should have communicated that to Ariel before the interview. And Ariel came off bad for clapping back at Tony Khan publicly the way that he did, because all he did was burn a bridge with somebody who happens to run the number two wrestling company in the world. And somebody he might want to talk to again at some point in the future, when when Tony actually has something of note to say. And he had a terrible excuse when people pressed him on it for, for why he never brought up the Vince McMahon stuff in the interview that Ariel did with Triple H last year. That was a very good interview. He talked to Triple H about his near-death experience and being in the new creative position that he's in. and It was a really good interview, but he did not bring up any of the Vince McMahon stuff. Or if he did, maybe it got edited out. I, I'm of the impression he didn't even ask him about it. And he got a lot of flack and a lot of criticism for that. And his response to that whole thing, which I'm not going to get into, I covered it at the time, but Ariel's response to, to those people was terrible. He used a Bobby Knight analogy that was just fucking aw- an awful analogy to use. <laughs> it was something to the effect of, why would I ask the new coach about the indiscretions of the previous coach? Like, who would do that? Uh, that's exactly what happened. But again, it was it was a terrible response. So I thought both of them looked terrible coming out of that whole situation. Ariel also said that if you think the AEW product is better than the WWE product right now, and and again, this was back in the summer when he said this, but he said if you think that the AEW product is better than the WWE product right now, you're a liar. Which, that may be true, but that's a weird thing for someone in his position to say. That may be his opinion, 
But calling somebody a liar if they think AEW is better than WWE, it's a very weird flex for a journalist. Anyway, Tony saw Ariel on WWE television Friday night, and he tweeted, You're a fraud, Ariel Helwani, and he tagged him. You're as legitimate of a reporter as Tony Schiavone. And he, and he tagged poor Tony Schiavone, and then he put hashtag AEW Rampage. It was the Rampage hashtag that got me, because this was during SmackDown. It was like 8.30 at night that he tweeted this when he saw Ariel on screen. On a night where Rampage aired early. Rampage did not air at its normal time slot on Friday. It aired at 7 o'clock. So Rampage was already over. But he made sure to get that Rampage hashtag in there. I thought, dumping on Shivani, he was just having fun with it. When I first saw the tweet, people were telling me about it when I was actually... uh, I don't know. I don't know how early I noticed it. Actually, I didn't notice that tweet first. The response from Ariel, though, came when I was already live streaming. But when I saw the tweet, at first I thought he was just having fun, like kind of like a wink and a nod. But that doesn't appear to be the case, at least not after what Ariel tweeted back to him after the show. Ariel replied, thanks for watching, old friend. Can't wait for our next chat. Also, don't listen to the snowman, Shivani. You're a legend in my books. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. Tony did not like that snowman crack. And responded by wishing Ariel uh, luck with the, quote, unbiased journalism. And that's where the conversation ended. Picking fights like this on Twitter is not a good... And I feel like I've said this before. Picking fights like this on Twitter is not a good look for Tony Khan. But it makes for great content for my shows. So if that's how he wants to spend his Friday nights, then uh, be my guest. But uh, this whole situation is just ridiculous. I really did, at first, I really did think that he was just kind of having some fun with it and being a little lighthearted, but when he responded back, it became, it was very clear that uh, Tony Khan was not having fun with this. He was legitimately upset uh, by this entire thing. And then last night, during the Elimination Chamber, Ariel Helwani was shown in the crowd with George St. Pierre, right, the UFC Hall of Famer. Michael Cole was uh, talking over the shot, and he referred to uh, the unbiased Ariel Helwani and then he had a crack, and I don't have it in front of me, but he had a <laughs> he had a crack in there about how, uh, you know, he asked the tough questions, even if you don't want to answer them. Uh, it was such, it was just, it was such a dig. It was such a burn uh, at Tony Khan. I can just picture him throwing furniture at home when he heard it. It must have taken every fiber of his being not to tweet his little fingers away when he heard that. Because you know he heard it. If he wasn't watching the pay-per-view live himself, you know he heard it very quickly on social media. Uh, but uh, Tony was able to control his urges this time, and uh, so far he has not responded to the uh, WWE burn from Elimination Chamber last night. Tony Khan is also going to be making another major announcement on Dynamite this Wednesday. The ratings were down this week, so it's time for another major announcement from Tony Khan. Uh, it could be about the Ring of Honor TV launch, uh, but that's already been announced. Uh, maybe it has to do with the Ring of Honor tag team titles, I was thinking, and what he plans to do with them. Uh, Dynamite also on Wednesday has John Moxley against Evil Uno, a tag team battle royal for one of the two open spots in the tag team title match at Revolution. Uh, I'm predicting a Lucha Brothers win. They just came back to TV this week. Lucha Brothers get one spot, and then I think in the Casino Battle Royal next week, I'll say FTR are the Joker entrance, and they win to get the final spot in the Fatal 4-Way at Revolution. 
Orange Cassidy defends his All-Atlantic Championship against Wheeler Yuta, his former best friend. I mean, uh, you know, quote, best friend, because they have a group called Best Friends. The acclaimed to take on Lee Moriarty and Big Bill. And we will hear from Brian Danielson. Soraya will have a rare singles match on TV against Sky Blue. And Christian Cage gives his first interview to Tony Schiavone since returning on Wednesday where he laid out Jungle Boy with the kill switch. Dynamite was not a great show this week. I had people telling me Rampage was so much better than Dynamite. I What I saw of Rampage wasn't great either. I, I saw Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks uh, throwing a basketball around with AR Fox. I said, this is not the show for me. But Dynamite was not a great show this week. It was a step back from the shows they've been putting on. The streak is over. They had a hot streak going. The streak is over. But they did set up several matches for the Revolution pay-per-view, which is only two weeks away. MJF against Brian Danielson in an Ironman match for the AEW World Championship headlines. John Moxley will take on Hangman Adam Page in a Texas death match. There will be blood. Samoa Joe defends the TNT title against Wardlow. I did like Wardlow's interview that he did with Jim Ross. I mean, Jim Ross didn't... <laughs> I mean, Jim Ross asked one question and then sat there. Uh, but I, I like the segment with Wardlow where he told the story about his father having cancer being why he grew his hair out in the first place and his beard and how Samoa Joe knew that. He, he confided that in Samoa Joe. And when Joe cut his ponytail off is when Joe made it personal. So I, li- I like that promo. Jungle Boy against Christian Cage is all but official, I would think. Same for Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks defending the trio's titles against the House of Black, which was teased after their match on Rampage Friday night. And Jamie Hayter likely defending the AEW women's title against Ruby Soho. That could end up becoming a multi-woman match also, but that seems to be the direction they're going in. The Guns are going to defend their tag team titles against the Acclaimed and two other teams to be decided in those two battle royals I mentioned. You would have to think they'll be doing Chris Jericho against Ricky Starks, part two. Uh, And that doesn't even include a TBS title defense, if they have one, from Jade Cargill. That would be nine matches if all those people were accounted for. And that's not counting a possible match for Adam Cole. I'm not sure why they brought him back last month if they're not setting him up for his first opponent at the pay-per-view. So that would be 10 if he wrestles on that show. That's too many matches for a show with a 60-minute main event. They're going to have to leave some of those people off. This this just doesn't feel like a must-see show. I, I don't know. So, something, is, something is off. Something has been off in the build to this pay-per-view. I'm not really feeling it. Uh, there was also an update this week on Thunder Rosa. Rosa has not wrestled a match since August 10th on Dark Elevation. She suffered the back injury. She was unable to defend her championship against Tony Storm. They were scheduled to have a match at uh, All Out, I believe it was. Per Fightful Select, they've learned that there was a locker room meeting with all of the women on the AEW roster at last week's tapings. Those they heard from said that it was an effort to ease the tension between Rosa and the locker room after several relationships had frayed. Those that Fightful spoke with, with knowledge of the meeting, said that Rosa did a lot of making amends for several issues that came up along the way during her previous run. There were some on the roster that took issue with her not being on the road with AEW while traveling for other work, 
and questioned the legitimacy of her injury, which Rosa has been very adamant about publicly. She's been on Busted Open a bunch of times and made it very clear that it is a very real injury that she has been dealing with. Uh, Rosa did Spanish language commentary last week, and uh, sources told Fightful that she was happy to participate in that. She noted that she would be back on the road, uh, but would not be wrestling immediately. Those uh, close to her said she is not cleared, but they are getting closer to that. Rosa this week tweeted, While my recovery continues, I will join AEW as a Spanish commentator and on-screen personality. I'm thrilled to be able to serve Spanish-speaking fans in this unique way. Health is a journey with ups and downs. Meanwhile, I will see you from the booth. It is best to put whatever drama that there may have been in the rear view to make sure that there are no problems when this woman comes back and is cleared to wrestle again. Because there were a lot of rumors about there being heat with this person and heat with that person and heat between Rosa and and uh, uh, Britt Baker. And, you know, she had a match with Marina Shafir and there was some controversy coming out of that. It is best to put all of this shit to bed now to make sure you get a clean slate And there's no miscommunications, there's no misinterpretations, there's no issues, there's no heat. These women are going to have to work together. The last thing AEW needs is more backstage drama. They've had enough of that. They had enough of that in September. They've had enough of that with Sammy Guevara and with Andrade and all the other bullshit that we have heard about over the past several months that has gone on behind the scenes. Tony Khan has a lot of things to worry about right now. This should not be one of them. So it is a little weird that they felt the need to have a locker room meeting over one person. I mean, it makes me think if CM Punk ever does come back, what's what's that backstage meeting going to look like? Uh, But if they felt there were issues that had to be worked out, I'm glad they did it because it's the smart thing to do. Cut it off now. Make sure that when she does get, you know, clearance and she's back in the ring, we don't have these problems anymore. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Jerry Jarrett died this week at the age of 80. Uh, Not only a headliner in his own territory, but a Hall of Fame booker and promoter. I would say second only to Vince McMahon as the most successful living promoter in the history of, of the wrestling business in this country. Uh, he had only recently been diagnosed with cancer of the esophagus, and he died while undergoing treatment. Apparently, it was just too rough on his heart. It wasn't the cancer that got him. It was the treatment for the cancer. Uh, it was too much for his heart to bear. Uh, Jeff Jarrett, who was scheduled for an eight-man tag team match on Dynamite on Wednesday, which was the day after his father passed away, told Tony Khan he wanted to work the shot. 
and he was there on Wednesday night. I heard the part of Jeff's podcast with Conrad last week um, after this news broke, and I I had heard that um, they broke. They had only just broken the news that he even had cancer. So I went back and I listened to it. They were they were watching Jeff's first wrestling promo where he talks about his dad, and he just started getting very emotional. And Conrad asked him, okay, is it okay to let everybody know what's going on? Is it okay to let people know why you're getting so emotional? And Jeff said, honestly, Conrad, I don't know. Um, I don't know if my father would even want this out, but he says, just go for it. And so Conrad said, you know, that uh, Mr. Jarrett has been battling cancer, and nobody knew been battling it for a few months. It was only a day or two later that he passed away. So I wouldn't exactly say that it was expected. Jeff and his father, they had a big falling out years after starting TNA. And what had happened is Jeff had no place to work after WCW went out of business. He had, he had burned his bridge with WWE the way that he left. Jarrett wanted the money he felt he was still owed before leaving. This was back in 99. Vince McMahon saw it a little bit differently. He saw it as Jeff Jarrett holding him up for more money or he wouldn't work his pay-per-view match that night against Chuck, which technically is what happened. (laughs) He did hold him up for money. Whether it was more money is you get different versions of the story, whether you ask uh, Jarrett or you ask people in WWE. But anyway, he did not leave on the best of terms. And so when Vince bought WCW, Jarrett was one of the names on TV that he mocked. The idea of bringing back. So Jeff and Jerry, they were on a fishing trip one day with Bob Ryder on Ryder's boat. Ryder had been working for WCW before it went under. Uh, On that boat, Ryder was able to sell them on the idea of starting their own promotion and doing weekly pay-per-views as opposed to trying to get a television deal because producing television costs a lot of money. And out of that fishing trip came NWA TNA. Ryder was the first employee. He was the longest tenured employee in that company until he died in uh, 2020. But it was not a financial success. They lost uh, a lot of money in those early years. And it didn't help that their financial backer pulled out with no notice. Dixie Carter worked in public relations. And her firm was actually doing marketing and publicity for uh, TNA at the time. Were it not for her going to her father, who is this big, uh, I think, energy executive. I was going to say oil, but Panda Energy is an energy company. Were it not for her going to her dad and convincing him to buy the company, it would have gone under. And that would have been the end of that. But her family saved it. And it's been through multiple owners since then. But Impact lives on to this day. I've always said it's like it's the cockroach that will not die. There could be nuclear holocausts. And the two things that will be left will be... Impact and a Twinkie. That'll be the last thing. Otherwise, you'll see just like on the horizon, it'll be all red, right? Like the red skies. You'll have the Impact logo on one side. You'll have a Twinkie laying on the ground on the other side. That's all that's going to be left. The issue with Jerry and, and his son came out of Jeff choosing Vince Russo over him to book the shows. And Jerry left not long after that. That caused a real fracture in their relationship, and they reconciled many years later. But imagine letting Vince Russo come between you and your father. 
There was a reason that they lied to everybody initially when they first brought Russo into the company. Even Mike Tenay didn't want to have anything to do with a wrestling product that was run in some way by Vince Russo. If he was involved in any way, he didn't want to have anything to do with it. And he knew almost instantly, without anybody even telling him, he just looked at the at what they were doing and he knew Russo was involved. Just looking at the content they were producing, he knew right away Russo's involved in this. And it was actually Jerry Jarrett who went to Mike Tenay out of respect and said, yes, Russo is involved. I will not hold it against you if you want to quit. But Tenay stayed. And uh, Mike Tenay ended up being the voice, he and Don West both, the voice of TNA for many years. But what does it say about Vince Russo that they felt they had to lie about his involvement so that people wouldn't rebel and leave the company? It's a similar deal many years later, where Dixie lied to the network that Russo was still involved in some way, or he was consulting, or whatever it was that he was doing. Um, it's just He's such a misunderstood man, I guess. Yet there are multiple examples of promoters having to lie about the fact that this man was working for their company. But anyway, I digress. TNA may not have been a financial success uh, right out of the gate, but it did lead to people like AJ Styles and Samoa Joe and others getting a national platform to become big names. And, and it gave a lot of guys and girls a place other than WWE to ply their craft, you know, a place with national television to work. Because there was no longer a WCW. Ring of Honor never had the television that Impact had when they were on Spike. At their peak, they did 2.2 million viewers. I think uh, one of the quarter hours even spiked, uh, no pun intended, I think it even spiked to almost 3 million viewers. There was an episode of Impact where there was a segment that did nearly 3 million viewers. Not even AEW has seen those types of numbers. And they have television on TNT and TBS. So that is part of Jerry Jarrett's legacy. Jarrett was more than just a success in Tennessee. He booked for Georgia Championship Wrestling. He booked for World Class in Dallas. Took it from losing money to being profitable. And when Vince McMahon, famously, when Vince McMahon thought that he might get sent up the river, he might be going to prison off all the steroid allegations when the government was coming after him, He actually moved Jerry Jarrett in with him for a time, in his home, in Connecticut, to groom him to take over WWE in his absence and run the company for him. It speaks volumes about Jarrett that Vince would pick him to replace him if he was found guilty. You know, the two of them used to have weekly phone conversations for many, many years. It goes back even to Vince's father when he was sick and dying from cancer. He asked Jerry Jarrett to keep an eye out for his son. But uh, ultimately, Vince was acquitted of the charges against him. And Jerry Jerry was more than happy to leave Connecticut and go back home to Tennessee. But it was in Tennessee that he had his greatest success. He was born into the wrestling business. His parents divorced when he was three years old. His mother was working a job already. And after the divorce, his father never sent a penny back home. He was in the army. He had been sending money. When the divorce happened, he wasn't sending anything back home. So his mother had to find another job, which is how she ended up selling tickets to the wrestling matches in Nashville. And eventually she became one of the first female promoters in the country. They started letting her run some spot shows in in certain cities like Kentucky and Indiana. He was selling event programs when he was only seven years old. And then he started promoting spot shows of his own as a teenager. He became one of the youngest bookers in the country. 
So he got his experience in the business from a very young age. Until he started his own promotion in the late 70s with Jerry the King Lawler as his top star. And that live Saturday morning Memphis wrestling show, that was, it was an institution for many, many years. At its peak, more than 70% of the television sets that were on at the time were tuned into Memphis wrestling. It was the highest rated wrestling show in the entire country. And they would promote their big shows every Monday night at the Mid-South Coliseum. That's how they sold tickets. Right, I talked a lot about this when I reviewed all the episodes from uh, Tales from the Territories this past uh, season, the first season of the show. That's how you made your money back then. That's how you sold tickets. The television was a means to sell tickets. I mean, it was like a ninety. It was like having a ninety-minute infomercial for those Mid-South Coliseum shows. Every major name came through Memphis at one time or another. Lawler, I mean, Lawler's had matches with all the big names: Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair. You name him, he worked with them in Memphis. And probably beat them, too. The Midnight Express, the Rock and Roll Express, that's where Ricky and Robert first came together, was in Memphis. When the Fabulous Ones weren't available in certain towns, they wanted a, a similar team, like a carbon copy that they could plug in there. That's how the Rock and Roll Express came together, and they became an even bigger team. Staying in the Ultimate Warrior, they got their start in Memphis working for Jerry Jarrett back when they were the Freedom Fighters. Uh, they didn't become the Blade Runners until they got to Mid-South working for Bill Watts, but they cut their teeth in Memphis. The Andy Kaufman stuff. The Andy Kaufman program with Jerry Lawler has been talked about to death. I talked about it, uh, again, Tales from the Territories. They did an entire episode about it. They did two episodes on Memphis wrestling, one of which was devoted entirely to the Andy Kaufman stuff. But they had Jerry Jarrett and Jerry Lawler. They were both part of the roundtables for those shows. After Vince McMahon Sr. rejected Jerry, uh, or rather uh, rejected Andy's pitch to do something in the WWF. Andy Kaufman wanted to do something in the WWF in New York. Right? He even he, they interviewed him on one of the shows. Vince Jr. interviewed Andy Kaufman once. There's footage of the interview. They're, they're, he's standing at ringside. We've got comedian Andy Kaufman from Taxi with us. And he interviewed him on one of the shows, but Vince Sr. didn't want to have anything to do with that Hollywood-type bullshit. And Bill Apter is the one who told Andy to go talk to the two Jerrys. Go talk to Lawler and Jarrett about coming to Memphis. Andy spoke to Jarrett. Jarrett passed them over to Lawler, and the rest is history. And in the episode... Jarrett, Jerry Jarrett claimed that they found out later on that Andy Kaufman never cashed a single one of those Memphis checks for any of the work that he did there. Jarrett said they had to change banks at one point. That's how they found out the checks were never cashed. Andy didn't do it for the money. He did it because he loved doing it. But there have also been a lot of stories over the years about guys starving, you know, working in Memphis. Steve Austin is the famous one, holding the check in his hand one day, in, in the back and staring at how low it was. And Jeff Jarrett walks over, smacks him on the shoulder and joked. He goes, hey, it's not going to get any bigger staring at it. Guys would have to find ways to save money if they wanted to survive. You could drive three or 400 miles to the next town for a $25 payoff. If you were just starting out, obviously the big names did a lot better than that. Uh, it was a trade-off though. You would work Memphis for the experience and the exposure on TV with the hope that you can move on to the next territory as a bigger name and make more money. But in the meantime, unless you were a star, you were going to fucking starve. So there's also a lot of stories about that as well. 
Um, Jerry Jarrett, very interesting, actually tried to buy WCW when it was very clear that they were looking to sell. He got together with his financial partner to try to secure funding or, or his own financing. This is all laid out in Guy Evans' uh, great Nitro book. Jarrett said that his bid for WCW would have been a selected asset purchase. So he would not have bought any of the talent contracts. Instead, his plan was to meet each talent one by one. He would meet with them individually. And he would tell them that what we're trying to do here is replicate the system that WWE has, which was paying based on results. And he would have gone in there and slashed costs. He thought he could turn the company around in one week. One week. He could turn the company around just by cutting payroll and getting rid of all the unnecessary expenses. So they made an offer. And the offer was never even considered. He never heard back. Uh, Eric Bischoff's deal with Fusion Media, they were his partners that he got together with. Remember, they were going to buy WCW. They went public and said... The deal is done. We're buying WCW. They were all excited. It fell through after Turner canceled the TV slots. And without the television, they felt, you know, Fusion felt that the company was worthless. That's when Vince McMahon got it for $4 million. He got the trademarks for $2.5 million and all in with the tape library, that brought the total to a little over $4 million. I think it was like $4.2 million or something. That's what he paid for WCW, which is quite the steal. For a company that a couple of years earlier projected that on its own, if it was not owned by Time Warner, and if they had generated the kind of money that they were expecting to generate, uh, they claimed that they would be worth about $3 billion. I forget which uh, trade journal ran that story. It was some uh, trade journal out of Atlanta. But I remember the nice chuckle it gave me the first time I read that. That there were people in that company who, you know, again, 99... Man, if we weren't owned by Time Warner and, and you know, if we're going to make the kind of money we're projected to make, we could be a $3 billion company. $3 billion. And they ended up selling for $4 million. If Jarrett got it, he still would have needed those TV slots. You know, without them, there was no way they would have survived. I don't care how much of a booking genius people thought Jerry Jarrett was. Uh, I don't care how many costs he would have cut. Without the TV, the company wasn't going to go anywhere. But, you know, I, sh- I should say this here because I don't know when I'll have the chance to address the uh, WCW sales stuff again, being that I'm talking about it now. Jamie Kellner, you know that name. If you know the whole story of WCW and the death of WCW, you've heard the name Jamie Kellner. Jamie Kellner has been the boogeyman for it for many years, even on this podcast, as the man who made the call to cancel WCW programming on Turner Networks. And he did do that. That ultimately was his decision. Because people thought he hated wrestling and all that. What he told Guy Evans in the Nitro book, because Guy Evans, again, it really is the definitive book on the rise and fall of WCW. He got to interview a lot of people who ordinarily would not give interviews. A lot of Turner executives and a lot of people like that. And in the Nitro book... What he told Guy Evans is that he actually grew up a wrestling fan. It wasn't that he hated wrestling. He grew up watching wrestling and even tried to make a deal once upon a time at another network with Vince McMahon. But the key thing that was reported in the book, which was never mentioned anywhere else, was that there was a condition in 
Fusion Media's uh, purchase agreement. Again, Fusion, they were the partners that Eric Bischoff got together with. They were going to buy the company uh, for somewhere around $70 million or so. Something that was never reported publicly is that in that purchase agreement to buy WCW that Fusion had with Bischoff, there was a provision in that agreement that effectively forced Jamie Kellner's hand in canceling the time slots. The condition was that Fusion retained the right to program the time slot or a time slot on TBS, even if WCW ended up failing and being canceled anyway. Which would have been a great deal for Fusion to keep the time slot and they could program whatever they wanted in there, even if even if their WCW gamble didn't pay off. They would effectively be holding the time slot hostage for a certain period of time. They would have a guaranteed time slot on a major cable channel. The idea was, look, we're going to pay all this money to buy WCW We don't want to take the risk of it being canceled a few months later, and then we're left with nothing to show for it. So at least we would have the time slot. So the belief on the fusion end is that when Jamie Kellner came in, and he saw that because Kellner was brand new at the time, he had just been installed, I think, as the head of TBS. He came in, he saw that, he read that, and he just wasn't willing to agree to something like that. He felt that was a bridge too far. I mean, look, it was still very stupid to cancel the, the slots when they did because that probably shut out a lot of other potential buyers. Uh, but maybe that didn't matter to them. Maybe the fix was in. Maybe the fix was in and Vince was going to get it regardless. Who knows? There, there's a lot of conspiracy theories about that as well. Uh, because I think the president of, of the WWF at the time was college frat brothers with the head of WCW. There, there were, there's a lot of conspiracy theories when it comes to how that whole sale went down. But uh, but anyway, up until recently, I, I had not heard about the condition to the Fusion uh, purchase agreement. It sounds like they got a little too greedy and it bit them on the ass. Meanwhile, over on NXT, they gave us another tease for a Shawn Michaels-Grayson Waller match that is not happening. But I have a theory on where it's leading. Uh, and they are actively trying to get Braun Breaker booed now. They're hoping the fans start giving him the John Cena treatment, which is a risky proposition. Although that uh, Cena guy did all right for himself, I guess. I enjoyed the opener on Tuesday with uh, Tyler Bate beating Grayson Waller. Waller is very good. Bate is incredible. Uh, this continues Waller's losing ways coming out of Vengeance Day and his cage match uh, lost to Braun Breaker. After that show, he stormed in on Shawn Michaels in the middle of his post-show media call. And he had to be pulled out of the room by Matt Bloom. Here, after he lost to Tyler Bate, he confronted Shawn Michaels in the gorilla position. And again, had to be escorted away and physically restrained by Matt Bloom. Matt Bloom is a big man. He's a big... He, uh, Giant Bernard is the reason they called him Giant Bernard in, uh, in New Japan. So Shawn Michaels just sort of, he's like his bodyguard. He's like the new Diesel now. You know, he needs he needs some support. He calls on Matt Bloom to uh, take care of the problem. And uh, Shawn was screaming for them to cut to a commercial break. So they are building the tension between the two of them in a way that makes you think Shawn Michaels is going to come out of retirement for one more match, possibly at Stand and Deliver. If Shawn Michaels were to get back in the ring, WrestleMania weekend, it ain't going to be for an NXT show. I know he's Mr. NXT now, but he's not coming back for uh, an NXT match. But Shawn Michaels is not wrestling again, I don't believe. He, he's done. I think he's happy being done. He's, he's said as much. So then what is this building to? My thought is a mystery opponent at Stand and Deliver handpicked by Shawn Michaels. 
which turns out to be the debuting Dragon Lee, who I think has had visa issues that have held up his uh, arrival in NXT. I assume that's why he didn't get the usual crowd shot at Vengeance Day that they uh, usually give to their big signings on their big shows. I think Waller main, is main roster ready. I think he's headed up after WrestleMania, so why not use him to do the honors for Dragon Lee in his debut? And it gives Waller a big send-off on his final NXT show. So I, I look at that as a win-win if that's the plan. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We got J.C. Jane's first promo since turning on her toxic attraction partner, Gigi Dolan, the week before. I did not cover NXT last week, but they did their own version of the barbershop incident, uh, only not nearly as good, with JC throwing Gigi into the door that was in the ring. Part of the, It was part of Bailey's ding-dong hello talk show set. They had Bailey making a special appearance last week. She did the whole ding-dong hello uh, talk show. So anyway, this was her big heel promo, and I thought she did all right. You know, it should have been shorter. I don't think she's got the chops yet to carry on a long promo like this. Toxic Attraction fell apart after they fired Mandy Rose. Uh, they could have called these two up to compete for the women's tag team titles, but they feel like they can get more value out of them individually. Uh, she said her only regret is that she didn't pull the trigger on Gigi sooner. She said that everyone's making Gigi out to be the victim when she's the real victim here, always having to carry their team. She joked about Gigi being the Janetti of their team. Poor Marty. She noted the fans called her the third wheel in Toxic Attraction, and she's the only one from that group left standing. Mandy is still standing on her back porch, taking feet pics and pulling in a hundred grand a month. So the question is, you know, can she succeed on her own? I don't know. I've never seen J.C. Jane out on her own before. I cannot give you an honest answer. We are going to find out together as we watch her and see how she does. We know she can talk. Uh, she's not a great promo, but she can talk. Um, but how does she look on her own when, she, when when the bell rings? How is she going to look on her own? That's going to be the real test. If she goes in there and has a bunch of clunkers, the fans are not going to be so forgiving. She's not a rookie anymore. She's been wrestling five years. Okay, She's been with NXT for the past three. Let's see how she handles the transition from tag to single. They aired a really good video package for Sol Ruka that I, I liked. They were showing pictures of her parents and talking about all of her hobbies and activities that she took up in school. But she really wanted to try her hand in wrestling. She said that when she first tried her Soul Snatcher finish, it sucked. But since then, she's perfected it and... She challenged Zoe Stark to a rematch because the two of them have had an issue recently. Some people on Twitter I saw, they were mocking uh, WWE. They posted an NXT tweet for, I don't know if it was on the WWE account, but it was for NXT or it may have been on the NXT account. But they posted uh, an NXT tweet for Black History Month. And they included Sol Ruka among all the faces of uh, talent that were in the graphic, they included Sol Ruka in there. And, and 
I laughed when I saw that. I thought it was a mistake. I had no idea she was biracial. I, I had no idea. Uh, I mean, not that I care, but when they, when they showed the photos of her parents here in this promo package, then it made sense to me. Although people were still making fun of them for including her and uh, Kiana James when they were uh, paying tribute to Black History Month. But they had Tiffany Stratton on the show as well in a random match with Thea Hale of Chase University. Uh, this was more about the Chase U storyline with Schism. Uh, I, I see that uh, The Rock's daughter is no longer Ava Rain. She's now just Ava. She has lost her last name. Hasn't even made it to the main roster yet. Already losing her last name. She is now just Ava. So this was really more about Chase U and Schism than uh, it had anything to do with Tiffany Stratton. They should be priming this woman to challenge for the women's championship soon. And instead, she feels cold since she came back in New Year's Evil. She just She just hasn't done anything. Braun Breaker came out for a promo, and the first thing I noticed was the production team cutting to a Braun Sucks sign in the crowd. Almost like it was planted there on purpose. He was interrupted by Jinder Mahal, Veer, and Sanga. Jinder said that he knows the weight of being a champion and being a former WWE champion himself. He can relate. And there were a small group of fans, very small group, I guess it's a small audience, so everything everything's relative. But there were a small group of fans that started a Braun Breaker Sucks uh, chant. They were singing it the way that fans used to sing John Cena Sucks. They were singing Braun Breaker Sucks. How convenient it was that Jinder just so happened to bring that up in his promo. How some of the fans were turning against Braun. He even used the line, you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Thank you, Harvey Dent. He challenged Breaker to an NXT Championship match on TV this Tuesday, which he accepted. So we have Jinder Mahal challenging for the NXT Championship. Jinder was in the finals to crown the very first ever NXT Champion. But he lost to Seth Rollins. Just like he will lose this Tuesday. But it was very clear they wanted at least a segment of the fans to boo Braun Breaker. They, they instigated it themselves. It was patently obvious to me. It was patently obvious to me that they instigated it themselves. I don't know why. I don't know what their end game is here. Maybe they figure the people are getting tired of him as champion anyway. And they're going to cheer for Carmelo Hayes over him. So let's give the fans a, a little nudge. So we can take credit for the inevitable and we can make it part of the story. I don't know how smart that is. But if that's what's going on here, they're they're not wrong. People are getting sick of Braun as the NXT champion. And they are, I think, going to want to see Carmelo Hayes take the title from him at Stand and Deliver. Meltzer had an item, by the way, in this week's Observer that the idea of calling Carmelo Hayes up to the main roster and including him in a Hurt Business faction is something that has been discussed. Now, for his part, Hayes, who... Didn't have to say anything. He quote tweeted a link to an article on the F4W website. And he said that he rates the accuracy of this report one star. Look, you know, the idea of Carmelo Hayes in the Hurt Business, it'd be cool and all, I guess, for him to get the rub. I don't think he needs it. I don't think he needs to be part of the Hurt Business. And he should get at least a short run first with the NXT Championship before he gets called up. I am all in favor of him beating Braun Breaker WrestleMania weekend. 
I don't know that they necessarily have to rush him up to the main roster. Not that he's not main roster ready. I think he's been main roster ready. But they have enough other people who are main roster ready who are probably going to get called up. Braun, for one. Uh, Grayson Waller. I don't know that they need to call up Carmelo before he at least has a chance to run for a few months with the NXT title. Now, I didn't get a chance to review last week's show. J.D. McDonough was pulled off of last weekend's NXT house shows because of a detached retina that he suffered last Tuesday after being uh, struck in the face by Ilya Dragunov. McDonough estimated a two-week recovery, and this week he came out to confront Dragunov. He had a big bandage over his eye. These two have been going at it dating back to last October when Dragunov got taken out by McDonough, and then Dragunov disappeared due to the dreaded visa issues. Now that he's back, they're picking up where they left off, and uh, you know the inevitable match between these two is going to be excellent. So uh, it doesn't sound like he's going to be on the injured list for much longer. And they closed the show on Tuesday with Roxanne Perez and Mako Satamura beating Caden Carter and Katana Chance. Earlier in the show backstage, Roxanne thanked Mako for agreeing to team with her. And Mako told her, I have my reasons. We found out what those reasons were after this match. Mako took the microphone after and said that she did a favor for Perez. And now she wants one in return. And she pointed and stared at the NXT Women's Championship. And Roxanne said that it would be an honor and she held up the belt. Vic Joseph closed by going, ooh! No. Uh, Vic Joseph closed by saying that Mako was going to be Roxanne's roadblock to WrestleMania weekend. That is a blatant tease for their roadblock show that they announced for March 7th, which is their next themed episode on USA Network. So they're not holding off on the match for Stand and Deliver, which begs the question, after Roxanne wins, who gets the shot? In Los Angeles, if she beats Mako on March 7th, who gets the shot at Stand and Deliver? I've, I've been saying for months that I think Tiffany Stratton is going to be the one who takes that belt away from Roxanne. I still feel that way. And she's only she's the only one that would make any sense, I think, for Stand and Deliver, unless they run it back and they do a rematch with Roxanne and Mako, which is always possible. Uh, Tiffany Stratton's the only other name in that division right now who I think would be even close to being realistic as a challenger for Roxanne. Who else? What are you going to do? You're going to do Wendy Chu in Los Angeles challenging Roxanne? No, you're not. JC Jane, she just wrestled for the championship. She got beat. Who else is there? Cora Jade, that's already been done. They already did Cora and Roxanne. There is no other obvious opponent for her. All right, let's do some mailbag questions and get on out of here. You can email me, thesolomonster, at gmail.com. Please include your name and where you are from when you write in. We will begin with Vincent, our boy Vincent from Columbus, Ohio. Which is more impressive to you, Roman Reigns' current run as the Universal Champion or John Cena being a 16-time champion? Really wanted to know which one holds more value to you, having a historically long title reign or a historical number of title reigns. Having a historically long reign is more impressive to me. If you told me uh, you could be the world heavyweight champion, which of course I could be, I could be anything I want. That's what my parents told me when I was younger. But if you gave me the choice and said, look, do you want to be a world heavyweight champion for the next two years? 
Or do you want to be a fucking 20-time world champion? Well, if I'm a 20-time world champion, that means I lost it 19 times. I don't see what's so impressive about that. So I would rather have the longer run. Mike in Lakeland, Florida, with Kane's Royal Rumble appearance and subsequent Hall of Fame induction in 2021, would you have been in favor of an Abyss guest spot in the Rumble that year with a confrontation leading to a match with Kane at WrestleMania? The Monster Against the Demon. I was not really interested in Kane and Abyss at that point. Maybe 10 years earlier I would have been. Uh, but what I did pitch when he signed with WWE as a producer uh, was giving Abyss a cameo in the Royal Rumble as as Abyss. Because Impact had changed its policy, if you remember, to where you could take your name and likeness with you when you left. That's why EC3 was allowed to be EC3 in WWE. I mean, not that it did him any good, but that's why he was able to basically take the gimmick with him. Uh, I'm pretty sure if Abyss wanted to, he could have been Abyss. In the Royal Rumble. And you give him a cameo in there. And I think it would have been a cool moment. Um, But, you know. They used him for a little while on TV. Remember, he was with AJ Styles. He was his uh, statistics guy. And uh, AJ was kind of, you know, bullying him every week. I thought that would lead to a match eventually between the two of them. We can have AJ and Abyss. Uh, But then he disappeared off TV and we never saw him again. He still works there, you know, behind the scenes. But... I always thought that was a missed opportunity just to uh, to do a little something with him on the main roster. His best days in the ring were behind him by then. I mean, he's really beat up. Uh, but it would have been nice. I think it would have been cool. Mark from Massachusetts. Was there any interest in Kurt Angle from WCW? And if so, what do you think he would have done there? <laughs> Not much. Uh, yes, actually, there was interest. The same week that he met with WWE, in fact. He's told the story on his podcast. Uh, he was right out of the Olympics. And he had a meeting with Vince McMahon. And uh, they made a very generous offer to him. A big multi-million dollar offer. WCW approached him about coming in around the same time. He doesn't remember who it was. But uh, they did reach out to him. They did have interest in bringing him in. And he wasn't sure what to do. He was told by somebody, give Ric Flair a call. I guess somebody gave him Flair's number. And he talked to Flair. Flair was in WCW at the time, so Kurt called him and Flair told him flat out, stay the hell away. <laughs> he said, I'm, he wasn't sure if that was just Flair trying to protect his spot or if Flair was just trying to look out for him and give him good advice and telling him, stay the hell away. Uh, but Flair told him, if you come to WCW, they're going to bury you. And he said, go to WWE. Vince will treat you right. Vince will know how to use you. So that's what Kurt did. Although it took him two more years before he finally signed. He didn't sign until 98. I think that would have been in, that all would have gone down, I think, in 96. But, uh, once he did, once Kurt realized, oh shit, I should have taken that deal. Maybe, maybe I'll get my multi-million dollar contract. He went back, crawling back to them and they were like, yeah, that, that deal ain't on the table no more. You want to come in, you're going to come in at whatever the minimum is. And you're going to work your way up just like everybody else, which is what he did. But ultimately, Kurt made the right call. He would have been screwed. I agree with Flair. He would have been fucking buried in WCW. With all those big names looking out for themselves at that time, Kurt would not have stood a chance. Abinov from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. I was watching your old John Cena Greatest Rivals video on YouTube. And you said that CM Punk would be number one. 
with Chicago Phil consistently in the news, it got me thinking about a similar list for him. Buy, sell, lease, and rent on CM Punk's greatest rival, John Cena, Chris Jericho, MJF, or Raven. That's very interesting that uh, you would include Raven in that because Raven doesn't get talked about very often as one of Punk's rivals. Um, So here's how I feel about this. As Punk would be John Cena's greatest rival, in my opinion, I know some people would say Edge, some people would maybe give another name. CM Punk is John Cena's greatest rival. John Cena, I believe, is also CM Punk's greatest rival. Not only did they have magic in the ring together, but they were polar opposites in their characters. And it's true what they say, opposites attract. They were the polar opposite. It was the perfect combination. John Cena was the antithesis of everything CM Punk believed in. He represented everything CM Punk hated and resented. And it was a great feud, and it was a great series of matches those two men had together. So I would buy on John Cena... Uh, I'd put him at number one. Behind Cena, I would go with MJF. And then I would go Raven in the number three spot. Raven was the first great feud of CM Punk's career in Ring of Honor. It helped establish his persona. It's why it gave him a reason to explain why he was straight edge and how Raven reminded him of his father when he was growing up. The best promos of Punk's early career were, were cut on Raven. And how he resented him for pissing away all of his success for pills and booze and and women. Uh, It doesn't get talked about as much as Punk's later feuds, but it it helped put Punk on the map. So I would go Raven at number three and I would put Chris Jericho uh, dead last. And finally, I got an email. This is not a question, but I thought it was an important email I wanted to share from one of our listeners, Reggie in Iowa. And I think it's a message that uh, everybody needs to hear. He says, I turned 30 in August, and despite my size, I was always one of the healthiest people. All the vitals were good, never at risk for anything. Water was my favorite drink. And then last fall, I started to feel sick. At first, it was just shortness of breath and then a loss of appetite, feet swelling. And then I could barely do anything. No energy, no strength. All I did was sleep. I finally went to the hospital. They found fluid in my lungs and my heart rate was higher than it should be. Unfortunately, they just sent me home with nausea pills. After a week of trying to eat jello, I went to a clinic and the doctor demanded I go to a different ER. That's when this healthy 30-year-old found out that he had heart failure. Wasn't my weight, wasn't my habits, it was my genetics. I am back home just waiting for a transplant. But as great as things are going and looking, I have to admit that I knew something was wrong. All last year, I just wasn't myself. I had an excuse for everything. And that's where I want to share the message, don't ignore your body. I ignored feeling so wrong for almost a year. And at any point, I could have gone to the doctor once, and this all could have been caught early. I almost died. I was barely a week out from being gone. And if I just went a month before, I could have gotten help before the worst of it. I've been a fan for almost 10 years, and I unfortunately have not been able to keep up with wrestling as much as I would like, but I recently started listening to my favorite podcast again, and I just think about how you always say, be well and stay safe. I thought it would be nice to tell people to stay safe with a story. And as I told Reggie directly, I am hopeful that he will be able to get that transplant, that all will go well. 
but that is very scary, especially for somebody so young. Uh, there's a reason why I say that, by the way. There is a reason why I say at the end of every podcast, be well and stay safe. You you know your body better than anybody. So if you feel something is wrong, don't ever assume that it's nothing or that it's just going to go away on its own. You you let a week or two go by, you still don't feel right. If you're worried you know, about money, if you have no health insurance or anything, just think of how much more it's going to end up costing you in the end if you wait and it gets worse. So listen to your body, and if something doesn't feel right, play it safe and get it checked out, please. And uh, Reggie, we're pulling for you, my friend. So you can email me, thesolomonster at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Solomonster. We've uh, picked up a lot of new followers over the last few weeks on there. And uh, I was uh, tweeting my little fingers away during the Elimination Chamber. So go ahead and follow me on there. We still have WrestleMania coming up in a few weeks. I'm sure there'll be a lot of uh, tweeting going on. And, of course, you can check out all of the weekly live streams on the YouTube channel. You don't just have the flagship here. You've got all of this bonus content, live and otherwise. If you go to the official Solid Monster Sounds Off channel on YouTube and subscribe to the channel there, we're over 72,000 strong and counting. Uh, I'm typically live every Monday night, Wednesday night, and Friday night. After the shows, and of course I am here each and every single Sunday. So I will be back with you next Sunday. That'll be episode 797 as we climb ever closer to episode 800 of the Sound Dog. Can you believe we're almost at 800 of these things? I know with all the YouTube stuff, it's probably more like, uh, it's probably more like 12 or 1300 at this point. But as far as the main show, yeah, we're, we're getting very close. We're getting very close to 800 and that's because of all you guys. So be well, stay safe, and uh, I will see you back here for 797 next Sunday. Until then, take care, guys. The Salamonster sounds off. Ariel Helwani's response to Tony Khan for his tweet earlier during Smack. Ariel says, thanks for watching, old friend. Can't wait for our next chat. Also, don't listen to the snowman, Shivani. You're a legend in my books. Wait a minute. Hold on a second. <laughs> How did that go over my head? How did that go over? I completely no-sold the whole snowman aspect of the tweet. That's like the best fucking part. <laughs> Ariel's in on the uh, on the joke that uh, Tony sometimes when he's tweeting, you know, he's uh, hitting the nose candy a little bit. Well, look, I mean, he set himself up for that. One, so it's all fair, right? Ariel, Ariel came back at him and he got what he had coming to him, I guess. There you go. The Salamonster sounds off each week, bursting with content. Podcasts, predictions, reviews, YouTube live streams, and more. Become a channel member for perks and follow the Salamonster on Twitter at Salamonster. 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 Salamonster sounds off.